ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Oh, hi there. Selena Green with you for The Country Hour today. Well, today I'd like to know what your fodder situation is looking like. Maybe you're out cutting hay already at the moment. In a moment, you'll hear what the national outlook is for hay and hear from one grower here in South Australia, but it could look very different at your place. So fill me in what's going on around the state uh, with your water supplies. Talk work number today, 1300 222 891 or my text line 0467 922 891. Also in this next half an hour, why container shipping costs have plummeted in recent times. The cost of operating vessels was enormous. Like the transatlantic, trans-Pacific, you were talking about you know, $20,000 plus for a 40-foot box. So that's a shipping container that's 40 foot long. That price is down to about $1,500. We'll find out what's going on very shortly. But first today, with some people across Queensland and other states already drought feeding, what is this going to mean for fodder supply come summer? Australian Fodder Industry Association Director Frank McRae says supply is already being squeezed. Western Australia is probably uh, having a, a reasonably good year. Coming across South Australia and Victoria, uh, the reports we're getting that seasonal conditions are still okay uh, through there. And then as we move into probably the Gippsland, sort of that sort of south southeast of Victoria, heading up the coastal regions and into New South Wales and Queensland, that's a very different scenario with the dry weather and, you know, the confirmation of the El Nino, so things are looking pretty dire for a, for a lot of the eastern like New South Wales and Queensland. What does that mean coming into an El Nino? Well, I guess it's going to affect fodder supplies. 2000 and probably 21 and 22 weren't great for hay production, so they were more silage type years. So there's probably a shortage of fodder. Uh, at the moment and our seasonal conditions aren't conducive to this being a good fodder year, uh, especially in the, the eastern parts of the seaboard, uh, New South Wales and Queensland. So is there uh, already a shortage coming into summer? We've had inquiry yesterday from producers down the south coast, Bega and those areas looking for fodder supplies. Their current supplies have run out. And they're looking to source fodder. Uh, the new season fodder season is not looking good. Crops are failing, pastures are failing, and we're sort of going from from day to day, looking at what scenarios we've got. There'll be some cereal fodder cut. Uh, some of the crops frosted. You know, some of the better crops got frosted, so they'll be cut for hay. But you know, there's a lot of crops in the sort of lower rainfall areas that won't have enough bulk to make hay, even if they do fail. So they'll be grazed down. So it, it's probably not a brilliant outlook for fodder production at the moment, especially in New South Wales and Queensland. What about for other areas where there is green feed available? How is it looking in those parts? Yeah, they're looking okay, but everyone's sort of holding on the stock at the moment, which is, you know, we've got uh, low low beef prices, low lamb prices, low sheep prices. So, 
you know, there's big numbers of those stock going into markets. Uh, the prices uh, have really sort of declined in, in recent weeks as the yardings increase. So producers are trying to hold on the stock to finish as well. So that's that's going to be grazed rather than cut for hay or silage. So that's going to exacerbate the, you know, the fodder supply. And in terms of prices for hay and silage... Yeah, generally they're increasing uh, for good quality loose and hay. There's always a premium market for that. And the protein hay like vetch for the dairy industry, uh, the chaff mills take a lot of the loose and hay. So the, the prices have increased significantly. And then the, the high transport costs are going to add to, to cost of the, the end users as well. So everyone sort of on knife edge at the moment, uh, you know, the livestock producers, fodder contractors and that, you know, most of the fodder contractors are looking at and even our harvesting contractors are sort of looking at at where they normally travel to different areas and follow the harvest through they're starting to pull out of areas the crops aren't going to be there to harvest so you know if you take the crops out and they're not good enough to cut for hay and silage so it's just going to mean that there's probably going to be a shortage of supply and you know the areas where we have got production then to transport to the other areas is going to be expensive. As Australian Fodder Industry Association Director Frank McRae and he was speaking there to Megan Hughes. So as you heard there at the start of that report, South Australian fodder supplies are at this stage looking better than some of the eastern states. Greg Harvey is from Harvey Hay Sales in the Hartley region between Callington and Strathalban. His business supplies mostly here within South Australia to those with horses. With our state having some warm, dry weather recently, I asked him if he's been cutting already. Yes, we have. Yeah, um, we've cut our hay down already. We're probably, on an average, I would say we're probably two weeks earlier than what we normally would be. Mm. Um, and uh, the crops that we've cut down um, haven't even actually got to the stage where we would normally let them get to. We like to have a bit of milk in the heads. Uh, so it's an early stage of setting seed and... Um, because it's got so dry, the crops are deteriorating. So if we let it go too much longer, um, we're just not going to have leaf. So you lose bulk. Right. Yeah, we basically had to cut them down while they're still green. Yeah, I guess that's that sort of waiting game is when do you pull the trigger? When's the right time to go um, to leave it long enough but not not lose the crop altogether? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. So did you have sort of a pretty good season running up to that um, to to get it in that early? Yeah, it has been, um, yeah, well, you'd almost say an exceptional season here on the Flurio. Uh, One more rain event would have made all the difference here, I think, for for all the local farmers and certainly on our family farm. Uh, But, uh, yeah, things have have turned. Uh, Certainly in the last fortnight, it's got a lot warmer and and a hell of a lot drier and and the crops are, yeah, just basically running out of puff here now. Mm. Are you about ready to bale? How soon are you going to be able to start that? Uh, we've got a, a week of cold weather. It's probably going to get down to nearly half the temperature, I think, by uh, by Wednesday. So um, our crops won't be ready uh, until the, the following week. Uh, then it's all up to Mother Nature, whether we get rain, whether we get a storm. Yeah, who knows? Um, but we're, we're yeah, a good week and a half off of baling yet. So where does your hay go? I mean, does it all go domestically within Australia? Yeah, yeah, as does. Um, we're not, not big scale by any means. Um, you know, we're pretty small growers. And as we, we basically 
sell most of our stuff. Uh, we target the horsey market, and um, so we predominantly do, do just small squares, and then whatever we can't put in the sheds uh, goes into rounds. So, yeah, we're predominantly horse market, so around, you know, the Adelaide Hills and parts of the Murraylands and the Flurio is, is where our stuff goes. Mm. Um, having said that, you know, you get some years where where people will come from far away to, you know, get hay because it's, it's not around like the droughts of, you know, 2018. Yeah, people can travel from, you know, quite a distance to get hay if they're struggling themselves, which uh, a lot of the parts of the country look like probably heading that way. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And I'm hearing a bit about how well, the role South Australia is probably going to play in those supplies going forward with many other parts of the country sort of looking to, to dry out quite considerably. You haven't had any of those inquiries as yet? Are you, you expecting some? No, I haven't had anything yet. We did have one fella from up at um, Milrose. He bought a heap of rounds, about four semi-loads of rounds off of us um, back several months back now and uh, because he is predicting dry times and uh, they've got a, a farm down the Mount Compass way. Uh, so, yeah, he, he got in early. He's probably mm. one of the clever ones while the prices are down. But uh, I think there's going to be a fair amount of hay around from what I'm hearing. I mean, I've got a brother-in-law up at Georgetown and he said, you know, the frosts have had a bit of an effect up there in the valley. So a lot of the grain growers there have been cutting down crops. Um, because they're, they're basically frosted and there's nothing in the heads. Mm. So there's, there's going to be a bit of hay kicking around. We were certainly on target for, you know, the third good year in a row. I mean, hay last year was not easy to do. It was extremely wet and uh, the Flurio district on a whole, as well as the mid-north, there was a lot of rain-damaged hay, um, you know, and there's still a lot of that hay sitting around unsold. Uh, you know, if it does dry like this and there is a lot of demand for hay well a lot of that sort of surplus hay might um, get gobbled up. That's Greg Harvey there from Harvey Hay Sales here in South Australia and yes we'd be keen to hear from any of those grain growers up around the Georgetown area if you have had uh, some frost impact do let us know what your uh, intentions are or plans are with that. Uh, give me a call or send me a text. Those numbers again, uh, the talkback number 1300 222 or the text line is 0467 922 You're with Selena Green today. It's a quarter past 12 here on the Country Hour. Uh, let's stick with hay. The more producers are adopting an alternative method of making hay that in some cases are halving the time it takes to cure and be ready to bale. The method involves spreading freshly cut hay across the ground to dry out rather than leaving it in narrow windows, windrows. Ryan at Millgate is a farmer at Minyip in Western Victoria. He's giving it a go this year and he told Angus Verley how he's getting on. Oh, we've taken a little bit of a different approach to what we've traditionally done, Angus. Um, I've sort of been watching a few others closely over the past couple of years. So what we're doing is probably a bit more what people would see with silage or maybe in European climates. We've um, So we've cut our vetch and then we've actually taken to it with a tetter rake and we made beautiful rows and we've spread them all back out across the paddock again. And the idea being that we're trying to speed up the drying process and get the hay in a bale a bit quicker than normal. Okay, so typically you'd, you'd windrow your hay, leave it in that nice, neat little windrow for it to cure but this time you you spread that windrow all over the ground yeah it seems a bit counterintuitive i know um driving along with a tether on and you're just spreading these rows out but i guess we found in the past 
vetch can take quite a long time to cure and we're just trying to close that window down for oh, heaps of reasons really there's you know the risk of spoilage and and, and the other main thing for us is just um you know we have a window we run a lot of livestock as well so we've had a window for a fortnight where we'd like to get our hay in a bale so we've sort of thought let's have a crack at see if we can get it carting in a bale within a fortnight and spreading it out for, uh, and leaving it there to cure rather than leaving it in a windrow do you get issues with bleaching or c- color loss of the hay look i'm only a novice at this so i can only comment on what i've seen but personally what we've seen we haven't seen a lot of you, yes you do get some bleaching but with what's left of the the, the hay um, because it's cured so quickly we've got you know really good color in the rest of it so the bales we have done so far the color looks you know exceptional to what you know it's far and above better quality than anything I've ever made and Ryan we should say too you're also using a, a hay preservative product can you just explain what that does and how it helps the process yeah so I think that that's actually really the key to the whole process is the the hay preservative. Now, like I said, I'm a novice, but it's my understanding is um, this product actually uh, reacts with the oxygen and and stops the yeasts and moulds and that forming in the hay. And they're, they're the actual, you know, those microbes are actually what create the heat and, and cause hay to catch on fire. So it's sort of, you know, the, the fire triangle, it's, 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 essentially the same as that you remove one part of that triangle being the oxygen and those yeasts and molds and and microbes can't live in the bales and removes the heat issue okay so you can bale the hay when it's at a higher moisture and and not be concerned about spontaneous combustion what we're actually aiming to bale we're still baling at a similar moisture level but i think that the key thing to understand is we're baling on sap moisture so we're still aiming to be around that 16% moisture that we're baling at, which is about where we'd be at if you're traditionally baling. But the moisture is actually sap that's still still within that plant, whereas traditionally you would let that plant dry right down and then we'd be waiting for a dew moisture, you know, moisture out of the atmosphere to actually bring that, that moisture back up to bale it. And if you were relying on that uh, dew moisture, you've, you've got a, a bale when the dew's there, don't you, in the middle of the night. But with, with this method, you can just uh, do it in the middle of the day? That's, yeah, that, that's, um, that's, the, uh, that's the intention and that's how those that have been using this method have been able to do it is, yeah, they, they can actually bale in the middle of the day because we're actually using the moisture that's already in the plant. Yeah, it can get quite fickle trying to get a, a dew and... You might get two hours a day, you might get 10, and it varies a lot. It's, um, I think it's a cross between an art and a dark science or something. It's, a, it's quite a tricky, you know, if you think you've got hay nailed and you've done it right, next year it'll be completely different again and you're back to square one. That was Minyip farmer Ryan Milgate speaking there with Angus Burley. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, container shipping costs have fallen dramatically in the past year, making it cheaper for exporters to move their goods. Well, during COVID, up to 12% of the world's container fleet was stuck in ports, waiting to be unloaded, driving costs to unprecedented levels. But Jim Wilson, who's communications manager with Shipping Australia, he told Karen Hunt that things are changing. 
here in Australia, we've seen a massive decline in the volume of containers coming into the country and also leaving the country. The actual cost of operating a vessel has also declined, although the fuel prices are volatile, currently about $670, roughly US dollars for a tonne of low sulfur fuel. What would um, that be compared to, say, 12 months ago or two years ago? Out of the COVID crisis, the cost of operating vessels was enormous. I do recall some shipping routes, like the Transatlantic Trans-Pacific, you were talking about you know, $20,000 plus for a 40-foot box. So that's a shipping container that's 40 foot long. That price is down to about $1,500. Now, on the southbound route from Northeast Asia, East Asia, down to Australia, we were hearing, you know, crazy low rates, uh, crazy low rates, $150 a box or less, whereas previously it, w- it was much more expensive than that. Because volumes are down, because freight rates are down, um, even though costs have fallen, we're starting to see some of the smaller players pull out of the Australian market, which is going to mean less shipping for Australian exporters. So if you're an Australian exporter, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. If you know you're going to be having a large volume of exports, book your container early. Are there other factors influencing the cost of getting containers in or out of the country? Well, there are always a wide range of factors, the cost of ports, inflation. One particular issue that's very important, if your primary export port is Port Botany, the operators of the ports, NSW ports, have mandated that for every box that comes into the country, one must leave. Now, they've done that really to avoid um, a buildup of, of containers in the country, uh, empty containers. The issue there is they are finding the shipping companies if they don't maintain what's called a low discharge ratio, one box in, one box out. Now, the consequences for the ocean shipping companies are if they don't get their boxes out, they get fined large amounts of money. So they have a strong incentive to get boxes out. The problem for that is if you are exporting through the port botany hinterland, you need those empty containers. It's a possibility that depending on what happens in the freight markets, we could end up with a supply chain squeeze for empty containers. I'm not saying it is going to happen, but I'm saying it's a possibility. Do you expect that that policy would be taken up by other ports around the country? No, we we don't think so. That policy has been in place for a while now, and none of the other ports, as as far as I'm aware, have discussed it or mentioned it or, or raised it. We have the uh, grain harvest coming up in the next little while. Do you see any impediments to getting the grain out quickly from any of the ports around Australia? One thing that is an issue that could be very disruptive for everybody is industrial relations. Basically, companies in Australia, very large ones, are generally subject to what's called enterprise bargaining agreements. So every three to four years, the union and the company will renegotiate the enterprise bargaining agreements. During that time, the unions are allowed to take protected industrial action. The protection means that nobody can sue them for anything. So they're allowed to have to strike. When that happens, that only needs to take three days notice. So that can massively disrupt the goings on at the waterfront. That is a potential for that happening because we are starting to see the regular rotation of enterprise bargaining agreements are starting to expire. Just Jim Wilson there. He's from the Industry Body Shipping Australia and he was speaking to Karen Hunt. The time is 24 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Time to head off to the Weather Bureau. Hannah Marsh is our forecaster today. Hello, Hannah. Good afternoon, Selena. And it certainly has been a pretty interesting uh, time overnight with those lightning strikes and strong winds around parts of the state. 
Yeah, it definitely has. We had a trough uh, which brought those thunderstorm activity. It's now confined to the northeast pastoral district, but in the 24 hours to midday, we've seen uh, including cloud to ground and cloud to cloud lightning strikes over 226,800 lightning strikes across the state uh, in that 24-hour period. And as you mentioned, we did see some gusty winds as well. So the strongest that we did record was uh, 107 kilometres per hour at Port Augusta at 5.27 uh, yesterday evening. Most of these were during the evening and overnight. We had 106 kilometres per hour at Nolunga, 102 at Wyala, 98 kilometres per hour at Unidata and 94 kilometres per hour at Adelaide Airport and Woodna. In terms of rainfall totals, we haven't seen uh, significant rainfall totals, just uh, 10 millimetres here and there. So in the 24 hours to 9am, we saw 10 millimetres at Pinaru, 8.8 millimetres at Morgan, 8.6 millimetres at uh, Wyala. Then since 9am, we've seen a further uh, 4.5 millimetres at Loxton, 4.4 millimetres at Nullarbor and 3.6 millimetres at Yunta. So as I mentioned, those thunderstorms are now confined to the northeast pastoral district. We've just seen the odd lightning strike also through the Flinders as well in the last hour or so. But then behind this trough, we do have uh, some cold air and some further thunderstorm activity about western coasts. It'll extend to central coasts as we head into the evening period. So talking about Kangaroo Island and southern York Peninsula. We'll also see an increase in the shower activity as we head into the afternoon and evening period. We've still got the fire weather warning uh, for the northeast pastoral district ahead of that change uh, with those fresh and gusty winds still expected up through that area. Uh, we also have some marine coastal wind warnings for the far west coast and upper west coast for today and for upper west coast and Spencer Gulf for tomorrow. As we head into tomorrow, we're looking about at the showers about the agricultural area and the south and east of the pastoral districts. With this cold air, there is the possibility of seeing some small hail developing about western parts uh, this evening and then also about the southern agricultural area and even central parts of the northern agricultural area as we head into Wednesday. There is the possibility of still seeing a thunderstorm about the far northeast border uh, that will mainly be uh, during the late morning and early afternoon. And temperature wise, we're looking at cool temperatures grading to mild in the northeast with uh, moderate to fresh south to southwesterly winds. So having a look at some of the temperatures for tomorrow, we're looking at 17 for Sejuna and Wyala, 16 at Port Lincoln, 20 for Coopapedi, 19 at Woomera, 16 for Broken Hill, 17 for Renmark, 13 with those showers at Clare, 14 for Mount Barker, 15 at Victor Harbour. 15 also at Mount Gambier and 14 for Kingscote. Then as we head into Thursday, we're looking at it being a cold, a cool start, uh, particularly with uh, possible frost patches about inland parts of Eyre Peninsula, the Flinders districts and also um, neighbouring parts as well. Uh, the shower activity will mainly be confined to the southern agricultural area 
particularly through the southeast of the state. And again, we'll be looking at cool temperatures in the south, but they will grade to mild in the north with moderate southwest to, to um, southeasterly winds. They will be fresh about southern coasts in the afternoon and evening. Then we've got a high pressure system that will move in uh, later on Friday and into Saturday which will clear the showers really just to southern coasts and generally looking at fine conditions. In terms of cumulative rainfall totals up until midnight Saturday, we're looking at less than 5 millimetres about the west coast, Air Peninsula, an agricultural area in the south of the pastoral districts, increasing to 5 to 15 millimetres about windward coasts and parts of the Flinders district and the northeast pastoral district, and possibly reaching 15 to 25 millimetres about windward coast, coastal areas of the no northern Spencer Gulf. Thanks for that, Hannah. Thanks, Hannah. Hannah Marsh there from the Weather Bureau. Uh, looking very quickly at the western inland of New South Wales. For tomorrow, the upper western district, a partly cloudy day with a very high chance of showers in the southeast, high chance elsewhere, and there's a chance of a thunderstorm. Daytime, those temperatures up to around 18 to 27 degrees. The lower western district, cloudy with a high chance of rain in the afternoon and in the morning, chance of a thunderstorm with temperatures sitting around 17 degrees during the day. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Well, good afternoon. A very busy half an hour coming up for you. In that time, you'll learn more about a nationwide network of volunteers known as Vets Beyond Borders and the work that they do helping animals following disasters like bushfires and floods. And learn about what the spread of varroa mite could mean for backyard beekeepers. You get attached to your bees just like you do to your family dog or cat, you know, and um, they have their own personality, each hive, and so to have to euthanise them, yeah, it's just horrible, really, really awful. Well, before that, we need to find out what's making news this afternoon. Matt Coleman has that update for you. Hey, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, power outages are still affecting over 20,000 customers after a thunderstorm last night. The state's electricity distributor says there are about 44,000 lightning strikes across the state in the three hours to 11pm. There are also severe wind gusts resulting in power cuts mainly in the Adelaide metro area. The mayor of a town in the southeast where a woman was attacked by a shark says the community is resilient and will bounce back. Yesterday, Pam Cook was taking part in an early morning group swim at Beachport when she was bitten on the lake while near the jetty. The Wattle Range Council Mayor Des Knowles says there has not been a shark attack in the decades that he's lived in the area, but there's always a chance of incidents like this. And South Australian universities will be rolling out disability and inclusion studies as part of their teaching degrees in a government-funded move to better equip teachers to support neurodivergent students. The government says from the first semester of next year, education programs at the state's universities will have an added inclusive curriculum from semester two students will be able to participate in practical autism training. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt.
Matt Coleman with those headlines. We've all seen the distressing images after a bushfire or flood of native animals and livestock needing care, whether that's through a personal experience or through the news coverage. It can be an overwhelming task for local vets to take on, which is where Vets Beyond Borders step in. That's a volunteer-based network can be called to respond to emergencies in any state or territory, and it's calling for vets across the country to sign up of potential well, what is ahead of another potentially severe bushfire season. And Lloyd Joinstones is the program and administration manager for Vets Beyond Borders. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thanks, Selena. Thanks so much for having us. Tell me a little bit more about uh, Vets Beyond Borders and this network. Avert, if I, is that yes. the correct way to pronounce it? It is, yes. So uh, Vets Beyond Borders is a not-for-profit organisation and uh, we pretty much do have, as the name sounds, we are a volunteer organisation that provides vets and vet nurses to organisations that need assistance. So much of our work is actually working in the Asia-Pacific where we send out volunteers to help with developing programs, uh, shelters, uh, small animal welfare organisations that need a little bit of extra support to care for the animals. Um, But what we also do within Australia is run a program called AVERT, and that is the Australian Veterinary Emergency Response Team. And again, it uses volunteers, vets and vet nurses, and final year vet students to be, they put their names forward to be deployed when a disaster occurs on our shore. So whether that's a bushfire, a flood, or a disease outbreak, we've got this incredible database of over 2,500 professionals who are ready to take action when needed. Fantastic. So say there is a a major bushfire, there will be animals that do need uh, treating or or assistance. The call will go out uh, to see who is available and and who perhaps has the the necessary skills to to deploy to that area? That's right. So it's all done based on location. So the database is is nationwide. Uh, And when people uh, put their name forward, when they register for a vert, we do ask a lot of information about their experience and their training so that we can provide the right volunteers with the right skills. Uh, and so a lot of our volunteers have got, obviously they're, they're qualified in their, in their profession already, but many of them have also done specific wildlife training, they've done tranquilizer dart training, they've done incident response training and fire ground training. So we're offering a lot of these training courses to upskill the database and we've been very, very grateful to have the support of WWF Australia who have provided some funding to allow all this to happen. So we're really making sure that when these disasters strike, we've got people with the really relevant skills that can go out there and provide the attention to the animals that's needed. So the types of roles that vets um, do provide, it, it may be finding animals that unfortunately do need to be euthanised because they are not able to be saved, but also treating animals that, uh, that may need some treatment? That's right, yes. So it's a whole gamut of things. And we do work with a lot of wildlife organisations who already, uh, they're obviously uh, right there as well, providing wonderful care and treatment. Uh, But we will require a vet if something as serious as a euthanasia is required. So our vets have got those skills and access to the right medications that that can be done swiftly and humanely. Um, And then we'll work with the wildlife carers to make sure that those animals have a good plan of treatment um, and that, yeah, certainly animals that that is the kind of thing to put them to sleep, that that can be done and done swiftly to minimise any pain and suffering. And just to clarify, it's not just for native animals uh, post-disaster. It may also involve any livestock or pets that may need care and attention as well. Yeah, no, it covers all animals that may be caught up in any sort of disaster and particularly when we see situations like floods 
there'll often be livestock caught up. I think we've all seen horrible images on television. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, certainly the vets and the vet nurses are sent out to help any animal that is in distress. And we'll work with, you know, obviously local vet clinics as well, um, but they will be maxed out. So, you know, we provide that additional support when it's needed. As you say, disasters can happen any time of, of the year, but I imagine coming into fire season and this one sounding like a potentially nasty one across the country, this will be when you really will need to have that network ready to go? Absolutely, yes. They're predicting it to be a horror season. And I think we, you know, we all saw what happened in 2019-2020. It was disastrous. And the, the number of animals that were caught up in that was you know, heartbreaking. So, you know, we've seen the strength of these fires and there's only so much we can control, but at least to be able to minimise suffering and to provide treatment to those animals that are, are, are injured. And um, that's the important thing for us. So, again, to get as many people on our database as possible, and, and 2,500 is a great number, but, but if anybody out there is listening and they have those skills as a vet, a vet nurse, or they may be training, uh, to please jump onto our website, vetsbeyondborders.org, and register for a vert. We'd love to have them on board. Yes, imagine the more the merrier because you're not always necessarily, even when you get the call, going to be able to go or perhaps have the, the requisite skills for that particular situation. So the larger exactly. database you've got, the better. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And we are trying to cover all areas of Australia. Um, you know, certainly in certain areas that there's going to be fewer people to call on. So it's great that people can travel as well. So, um, but yeah, it's definitely to please get registered on there. Make sure if you are already on there, make sure your information is up to date too so that we, when we call out we can find you quickly and, and make contact and it's not, obviously not compulsory that if we do call out you're not available, that's completely understandable but as you say the more people we have on there the greater our chance of supplying the vets and vet nurses that are required And have you got some vets here from South Australia on, on the register? Absolutely, yes, yeah. so great vets and vet nurses from Australia, there's also a local group down in South Australia that's doing wonderful work there as well so we'll provide support if needed but yeah, AVERT is nationwide uh, we even have quite a few people that have signed up from overseas so I don't, I don't think we'll be calling on them but it's lovely that they're, they're interested and very keen to get involved and to help Australian wildlife, I think people across the world have seen the images of the last bushfires and, and don't want to see that repeated yeah, and I guess it's just a way, you know, we all feel helpless when we see these images sometimes and think, so, think of ways that we could help. This is a, a way that uh, people know that they, they can provide assistance and makes them feel like a little bit less helpless, I guess. Absolutely. And, and you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of speaking, that we our whole uh, focus of, of Vets Beyond Borders is we use volunteers. And uh, I think people would be blown away if they understood how much uh, the vets do give of their time uh, our programs are completely voluntary, so when we're sending a vet over to, to Fiji or to Indonesia or to India, the vets are paying for their own airfares, they're paying their own accommodation, they're taking time off work to give back, and it's really admirable, and um, it's, you know, we're just so delighted to have such wonderful volunteers, and many of them come back five, six, seven times, so um, you know, they're really providing a wonderful service where it's really needed. So, and this network has been around for a while here in Australia. There have been a number of incidents or major disasters where you've you've deployed people from the network. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Avert was started in 2015. Um, there was obviously a need seen there that, that there just weren't enough qualified or available vets and vet nurses, and no particular system in place to to garner a large number at any one time. So we do work very, very closely with the Australian Veterinary Association as well and they provide support in different states as well uh, when situations like this happen with disasters. Um, but this is just really a national database that we manage ourselves 
um, so that we can provide support when it's needed. And when we get the call from the state and territory emergency response officials to say they need us to step in, then, yeah, we're ready to go. It's fantastic to know that network is there. Hopefully we don't have to call on it, but unfortunately uh, the nature of the beast is there will be time, so it is great to know that it exists and these wonderful people have put their name uh, to it uh, in a volunteer capacity. And thanks so much for telling us more about it today on The Country Hour. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Selena. Thank you and have a lovely afternoon. That was Anne Lloyd-Jones there from Vets Beyond Borders and she was speaking about AVERT, which is the Australian Veterinary Emergency Response Team. It's 20 minutes to one. Well, the time and costs involved in managing varroa mite could force half of Australia's amateur beekeepers to hang up their bee suits. That prediction is based on research of the impact of varroa mite on beekeeping in, or the beekeeping industry in New Zealand and America. Stuart and Cedar Anderson are a father and son team who revolutionised backyard beekeeping and they certainly hope that's not the case. They're the Flow Hive inventors and they told Kim Honan the decision to transition to management of this bee pest didn't come as a surprise. It was always a long shot to eradicate the mite from our shores and one way to look at it is we're lucky to not have had this mite for the last 30 years like many other continents have had. And so what do you think a transition to management looks like for Flow Hive beekeepers? Do you think it will be harder for them to manage? It's a bit of a hassle. It's a new thing to learn, but it's not too big a deal. It involves assessing the mite load of your bees, which people are doing already, doing the alcohol wash or or the hot soapy water or whatever, and then using strips when necessary to control the numbers of varroa, strips that just get inserted on top of the brood box. So uh, I've I've done that in the US with beekeepers and, you know, it's just another operation to add, but it's, it's, you know, clearly the rest of the world's doing it and managing it. It's not too big a deal. Yeah, so how have flow hive beekeepers around the world been managing varroa mites? It's been in these countries for years, for decades in many. Because we started off as global, it meant we built pest management into the bottom of our hives. And that is lucky for us here in Australia too, because now that we have the mite, we can use the pest management tray not only for the hive beetles, but also to help assess the mites. And how do you do that? So that's done by inserting a sticky board and the mites fall through the uh, screened bottom board and then you can count them and work out whether you need to treat or not with that hive. And do you know how many flow hive beekeepers in red zones had to euthanize hives during the varroa mite response? It's in the hundreds. Yeah, we're not sure exactly how many. So a really devastating time, no doubt, for them. Oh, just awful. It's, I mean, you get attached to your bees just like you do to your family, dog or cat, you know, and um, they have their own personality, each hive, and so to have to euthanise them, yeah, it's, it's just horrible, really, really awful. So they've had to destroy the, their bee colonies. Did they have to also destroy their entire hive, the, the, the box, the frames? Um, they had to destroy the brood section, which is usually the bottom box, but they didn't have to destroy... The flow super um, had to clean it, clean it out of bees, of course, and the colony itself was destroyed. But the gear, which I guess is the more expensive part of the hive, as far as our customers are concerned, the flow frames themselves didn't have to get destroyed. 
So we're hearing that um, based on sort of research from, from overseas that, you know, around half of amateur beekeepers are likely to leave the industry with the extra time and the extra costs in managing varroa mite. Do you think that that estimate is accurate? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, we really hope not because it's really important for us to have enough beekeepers to manage enough populations in order to do the pollination work that's needed. So it's going to be more important than ever to be a beekeeper and look after your bees. And do you think that the beekeepers that have had to euthanize their hives are likely to restock? Well, some of yeah, some of them will, and some of them are going to find it pretty. They'll be disheartened and it'll be hard. So we'll do our best to encourage them, of course, and um, and also thank them and all all the commercial beekeepers as well for the sacrifice they've made, which which helped slow varroa and and was part of hoping to eradicate it and not have it on our shores. So they were the ones that made the sacrifice. And I know there's some monetary compensation, but, you know, uh, that, that's just a part of the um, distress, isn't it? The money distress at, at losing your bees. So we hope we can encourage them back into beekeeping. And we know there's many that are keen because we're getting requests from those now orange zones. When can I keep bees again? And how needed do you think are our backyard and amateur beekeepers, especially since we're you know, going to lose such a, a large portion of the feral bee population in Australia? It's unknown the wide-reaching effects of a pollination crisis. So it's really important that we do keep up beekeeping, knowing, as you say, that we are losing a lot of the feral colonies that actually did play an important role in pollination because humans and honeybees are actually intertwined where we now have an agricultural system that relies on this species Apis mellifera, the European honeybee, which does an extraordinary amount of pollination. A single hive can pollinate 50 million flowers in a day and we just don't have anything to replace that. So beekeepers will be very important. As father and son, Stuart and Cedar Anderson, they're the inventors of the Flow Hive, and they were speaking there to Kim Honan. 14 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, this month, October, is Mental Health Month, all about highlighting the importance of speaking out and seeking help when it's needed. Now, along with its retrieval service, which you'd be pretty familiar with, the Royal Flying Doctor Service also offers a range of mental health-based services, one of those being regular clinics in the outback. Peter Crossing is a Royal Flying Doctor Service Outreach Counsellor for Mental Health, Alcohol and Other Drugs. He's based at Wellbeing Place in Broken Hill and often travels out for the rural clinics to offer a space for people to come and voice their concerns. Peter spoke with Lily McCure on the importance of getting out and about in the communities so that people know that they can turn to him in times of need. I try and get to know people at events, try to get to, I suppose, break down the barriers, create a rapport with people. You know, their life might be going great today, um, but who knows what could happen in a month's time. You know, something goes wrong and they, they feel they need to talk to someone. They might not remember my name. I usually tell everyone where, we, where we're based in Broken Hill and encourage them to come in there and have a cup of tea and have a yarn with us anytime. There's always someone there, Monday to Friday. It's just more like getting my face or getting 
whole team getting their face out there, getting known, so that if we're needed at some stage, you know, you're more likely to have a yarn to someone that you've already had a yarn to and you, you know how, how you get on with them. In these really tough times for these people, how are you able to be there for them and be someone for them to talk to? What we do in conjunction with the, the We've Got Your Back program, which is a peer support program that Flying Doctor Service run in conjunction with Lifeline, it's great having those the grazier people we've got four in the West Darling area, which gives people a point of contact if, if they'd rather... Some people would prefer to talk to someone they know quite well down the road. Other people, quite the opposite, they want to talk to someone that doesn't know them in the area. That's partly where I come in. You touched on the We've Got Your Back program. How have you seen that help people? It's definitely helped. It's a good thing. Um, like I said, not I think three out of five people that approached our champions in the last year or so said that they wouldn't have gone and talked to a doctor or GP about it without engaging with the champion first. They would have dealt with, tried to deal with it themselves, whereas after talking with a champion they were quite happy to go and have a yak to their GP about things, which is a step in the right direction. They can then refer them to us or our team or other supports as what's, whatever's needed. Do you think the mental health awareness and the struggles that people are going through in more rural isolated areas are you know becoming increased or are they sort of stabilizing and people are seeking help where they need they had years of drought that was pretty taxing on a lot of people everyone and um where they had to you know get rid of livestock they built up over over years it made it very hard and then basically as it started raining we got hit with covid as well which made isolation more more of an issue. You know, there's a lot of talk of a drought coming. Uh, I don't know whether that's the case or not, but it will definitely it will definitely come. It's just a matter of when. It makes it hard for people to plan ahead, as opposed to people on wages. They've got a set wage coming in every year, every month. A bit different on the land. You've got to basically earn money when you can, make the best of what's happening with the weather and with your with your land at any one time. That's Peter Crossing there from the Royal Flying Doctor Service speaking with Lily McCure. And the Royal Flying Doctor Service Mental Health and Wellbeing Team, well, they do around 2,000 face-to-face and digital consultations each year. So you can hop on their website and see uh, how you can access those services if you're eligible right across the country. But, of course, if you or someone you know does need to talk to someone, uh, Lifeline is always available 24-7 and you can call them on 13 11 14. Know a young person who's up to something great? The ABC is looking for trailblazers aged 18 to 28 who are doing inspiring things in their regional town. We want to feature stories of people who have great ideas and who care about their communities. We're often missed in conversations. We need to be included. Trailblazers will have their work featured on the ABC and receive an amazing package of support. Hurry, applications close October 4. Apply now for the Trailblazer program at abc.net.au slash trailblazers. It's certainly a great program, Trailblazers. Another great program is the Nuffield Scholarship. Over the past 70 years, more than 1,000 Australians working in the food, farming, horticulture and rural industries have been funded to study their passion through a Nuffield Scholarship. Well, the latest 25 scholars were announced at the National Conference in Perth quite recently. So next year, they'll all be off travelling and chatting to some of the best producers in the world and the aim of sharing their learnings back here in Australia. But some of the farmers who did their research years ago were at this conference, including Brenda 
London Smart from Keith here in South Australia, David Brownhill from near Tamworth and Peter Nixon from Moora in WA. They were asked how the Nuffield concept is still relevant to improving the way farmers provide for the world and how big of a challenge that is these days. Yeah, it is, but, you know, we've all been to the talks and we've all heard that the world population is growing um, and there's land being taken out of production for housing or for something else, and it could be energy going forward and probably is energy right now. So it's our job to make sure that, the, you know, we can feed, if the number is 9 billion or 10 billion, we can feed those people. So, and most Australians, agriculturalists, most agriculturalists, they don't know whether they're Australian or not, take that job very seriously. Can you just take me back to when you guys did your Nuffield Scholarship, Peter and Brendan? What year was it and where did you go and what sort of memories do you have? Well, first of all, Brendan and I did our scholarship in the same year, so we travelled together. That was in 1990. And uh, back then there was only two scholars being selected in Australia every year, effectively. So where did you guys go? We went to the UK initially and then we both went our separate ways um, after six weeks of travelling together with some, um, with some other scholars from around the world. Uniquely, um, the Iron Curtain came down in 1989 and we were there in 1990. So we had a Russian guy join our group for six weeks and um, that was a revelation and we subsequently went to Russia to visit their country and he came here. But it was a great uh, education to us to see the difference at that time between the East and the West. But I can just come back to your point about can we make a difference? And, um, you know, we've gone from two scholars to 25 scholars a year now out of Australia, and we've expanded it to 70 or 80 now globally, I think. When you think about the trend in Australian agriculture, that used to be 80-20 rule, you know, where 20% were producing 80% of product. And I think that personally now, I haven't seen the latest figures, that number's probably getting closer to 10 90 10% of producing 90% of Australian product. We've only got 130,000 registered farms in Australia. So there's, there's a lot of um, producers there now, the, the larger family farms and corporates that are producing a lot of product, food and fibre. So if Nuffield can select 24 or 5 scholars a year, they're going to, a lot of them are going to come from those major sectors of agriculture where they can make a real difference. And if you start to improve the top 20% of producers and down the top 10% of producers, that makes a massive roll-on effect of food production, not just in Australia. That actually reverberates then right through all the countries involved with Nuffield. So, we, you know, we really can and we, and we are making a difference. Brendan, one thing I just wanted to ask you is that you posed a question to a panel at one stage and you were saying it's great that we're starting to increase the yields and the production from the farming land and that's what the consumers are demanding but at what cost to the environment? Do you want to just explain the, the cost that you were talking about was from back home? What did you mean? Look, it's the tightrope we work, we walk as uh, producers. We have to be more environmentally responsible. And, and I think most of the farmers I know now, the leading edge producers, are active environmentalists. They're not environmental activists. You know, we really are actively managing the environment. But that also has challenges. And the better we get at water use efficiency and growing crops, there may be a downside from that. There's also a positive side from that too. Not just better food production, but managing saline, uh, you know, groundwater is one of them. But there's also a downside where other parts of the environment may miss out. What the consumer has to understand is, though, we're doing the best we can with what we've got. They're still eating the cheapest food they've ever eaten in history. And the food is still as wholesome as it's ever been. And, uh, and we're doing it in a far more efficient way than we've ever done before. The environment's the winner. 
but along the way we've got to make sure that we tell we sell the story right and we manage the environment all parts of the environment the best we possibly can and carbon now becomes a part of that story once we understand it and once everyone understands it that'll become a bigger part of the story it was a tough question to ask the panel but i'm going to ask his question to you peter <laughs> how would you have answered that if you're part of that panel because it is a tough one i mean what you were talking about brendan was Back home, you can remember 40-odd years ago, there were lakes and there were the yabbies, for instance. A lot of those have disappeared. But what would your answer be be to that one, Peter? Well, again, it is a difficult question in many ways. But really, if you step back, and we're talking about Australia here, is that agriculturally, we're relatively new in the world. If you go to some of the older developed countries in Europe and England particularly, They have totally artificial environments. In other words, over the centuries, their environments have adapted to the agricultural practices of the day. And so they've already reached a a new harmony with the environment, if you want to put it that way. And whereas we're still, in my view, in that transition phase, it'll never be what it was because of the clearing and everything that goes on. We've got to feed the world, so as a consequence you need farmland and we need to, to balance that. But there is a role, and certainly in our business, we've practised that environmental stewardship, but things will change and there is a transition phase which we're going through. David, did you have anything to add to that? Well, I had to answer the question the first time, you know. So <laughs> I didn't want to put, didn't want to put you on the spot twice. <laughs> I was on the panel. No, but I think I think to Brendan's question, I think the real issue that I see happening is that we look after you know, it's privately owned land or it's leasehold land or whatever. But our job is to look to look after that as custodians of that land. We, we're only here for a short time. It was talked about last night at dinner. We have forty we have forty years of farming. That's about it. Most farmers farm for 40 years, and they start when they're 25 and finish at 65, or a little bit either side of that. But so you don't get you don't get long. Well, these guys have been here a lot longer than that. But that's okay. <laughs> but no, but you don't you don't get long to make a difference. But the thing is that we've got to bring the community along with it, with us, and say you know yes, we we are farming that farm, but that's part of the local community, and it's part of the state of South Australia in Brendan's case, and it's part of Australia. And we, and the key thing that I see, and the most difficult thing I see in agriculture right now is being able to keep the narrative and say, we're just trying to feed you guys, we're trying to clothe you guys, we're trying to do it at the best ability that we have at the time, the best technology, we're trying to do it, keep the environment as best we possibly can without trying to you know, harm the environment and look after the, the consumers who want to use it. Now, we talk about the export market in Australia, which we have to because someone has to feed the world. Most, a lot of countries in the world have no food at all. They have to import the whole lot. You know, you can have the whole debate about whether Australia should be holding up the can, but agriculture is really important to Australia. You know, which we're heading towards $100 billion. The other thing that's going to have another big play is the energy, not just carbon, but the energy. The land we're going to have to use to either put solar panels or wind turbines or the transmission lines to get that energy where it needs to be, that's also going to have an effect on, on the, the environment and agricultural production. That was three former Nuffield scholars there, Brendan Smart from Keith in South Australia, Peter Nixon from Moora, which is in WA, and David Brownhill from near Tamworth in New South Wales, and they were all speaking there to Richard Hudson. That's pretty much it for me for today. Thanks so much for your company. Stick around. Uh, Late afternoons will be coming at you very, very soon. And... uh, I'll be back tomorrow from noon. Uh, don't forget you can keep across all of the greatest and latest rural news on the ABC News website, abc.net.au. 
forward slash rule. And uh, you can listen back to the Country Hour or find any great ABC content on the ABC Listen app. It's free. Go and download it right now onto your smartphone or your tablet. It's time for the news now. It's just going on one o'clock. To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the App Store on your phone. Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations. Now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.